Thank you for joining us again online today. Uh, we are excited to continue this three-part series our pastor is in, where we're dealing with how to live in a hostile culture. Uh, we certainly do live in a hostile culture, both to the gospel and to so many different ideas. Uh, today, we're going to talk about what it is to be a person of integrity. And in that, we're going to look at some areas in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So go ahead and grab your copy of God's Word. Turn to the front. You'll be very close to Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He will walk you through where we need to go and specifically uh, chapter and verse where we'll be this morning. So we're excited about this. I hope you'll grab a notepad and you'll really understand what it is to live as a person of integrity, even when there is hostility coming at you in life. So let's pray. God, thank you that you're with us, that uh, even in hostile times that you, uh, you help us, that you will hold us accountable, that you'll protect us and you'll protect our witness by living as people with integrity. So today, as we understand that better, we learn and we grow in that way, that you would challenge us, uh, and then we would come away with some very practical things that we can do to help us live as people of integrity. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm sure many of you saw the story in the news last week of these two men who got into an argument over politics. One of them was 41 years old, and the other one was a young 18-year-old, and apparently it became so heated that the 41-year-old took his car, ran over the 18-year-old, and killed him. Now, that's a tragic story, but the truth is it doesn't shock us. We hear of things like that all the time because our culture seems to be so divided, filled with so much anger. There is so much hostility, and you find it in all walks of life, all kinds of issues. Practically every group It's here in America, it's around the world, and it really doesn't surprise us very much anymore, unfortunately. A few years ago, there was a, a company in Germany that established a hotline, and if someone paid $2, they could call that hotline and scream and curse and express all their anger and frustration at a live operator, just kind of get it out as a way a company came up with to make money. And, and, and it worked because there's just so much anger and hostility in our world and, and in our culture. And last Sunday, we learned that Jesus said, that's how the world's going to be. It's not new, has been that way, it is that way, and it will be that way. And, and yes, we recognize that maybe our social media and technological advances have exasperated it, maybe, but, but the world is just a messed up, hostile place. And, and sometimes that hostility is intentionally and specifically directed at those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, who are his disciples, those of us who believe in the historic Christian faith, who believe what the word of God uh, teaches. And so the question we're answering last Sunday, today, and next Sunday is this. How are we supposed to respond? How are we supposed to live as disciples of Jesus in this culture that is so hostile toward us, but just hostile in general? What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to, you know, just kind of retreat and hide in a monastery, so to speak? Are we to, to fight 
and uh, use political power to win the so-called culture wars? What are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to just give in and give up and compromise our beliefs, compromise our convictions, and deny the Word of God? How are we supposed to live as followers of Jesus in this angry, hostile culture? What did Jesus say? What does the Bible teach? Well, last week, we said that Jesus teaches us we are to let our light shine in this hostile world. And we do that by loving those who are hostile toward us, loving those who are unkind to us. And we also let our light shine by living a sanctified, righteous life. Well, today I want us to look at two passages in the Old Testament. So the first is in Leviticus. Go ahead and open your Bible, please, to Leviticus chapter 6. And I'm titling today's message, Have Integrity. If last Sunday we talked about we live in this hostile culture by letting our light shine, today I want to talk about living in this hostile culture by being people who practice integrity. And in these two Old Testament passages, very specifically, we are taught that we are to have integrity in financial matters and money issues, and we are to have integrity when it comes to our relationships, how we treat other people. In Leviticus chapter 6, Moses is is reviewing the the laws. God is actually giving to Moses the laws by which the Jewish people, the Israeli nation, is to conduct itself. And while those laws intended for Israel do not specifically apply to us, the principles, the moral truths behind those laws that, that energize them and from which they arise, they do apply to us. And so I want us to see what he says in Leviticus 6, reading the first seven verses. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, that's verse 1 and verse 2, when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord, and here's how he does that, and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or security entrusted to him, or through robbery, or if he he has extorted from his companion, or has found what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely, so that he sins in regard to any one of the things a man may do, then it shall be, When he sins and becomes guilty, that he shall restore what he took by robbery or what he got by extortion or the deposit which was entrusted to him or the lost thing which he found or anything about which he swore falsely, he shall make restitution for it in full and add to it one-fifth more, 20% more. He shall give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering. And then he goes on to say, after doing that, he makes atonement for his sin. He gets right with God. Now, we don't have time to break down every detail of every form of stealing mentioned in these verses. But what he's really saying is any and all forms by which you obtain money or property that does not rightfully belong to you. You take it from someone else. You steal it however you steal it. You take it from others through financial corruption, 
through dishonesty, through deception, through lying, by coercion or fraud, however you take it, he says, that is a sin. And the motivation the motivation when people do that is greed. And sometimes people do these kind of things to enrich themselves and, and they think, well, God doesn't see it. God doesn't notice or God doesn't care. And they are so wrong. I want you to notice in verse 2, he says, when a person sins, notice this, when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord, how does he do that? He goes on to talk about all of these financial sins. All the ways people steal what belongs to someone else through fraud, through deceit, through lying, through thievery, whatever, whatever the method, it doesn't matter. When we obtain for ourselves in an illegitimate ma manner what rightfully belongs to someone else and does not rightfully belong to us, we're sinning against others. And what he's saying here is when you do that, God notices because it hurts other people. Last year, there was a 45-year-old man named Stuart who was sentenced to more than three years in prison. And here's, here's the reason. He had a job raising money for a charity that provided recreational opportunities and, 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 and facilities and equipment to disabled Israelis of all ages. And he was paid a good salary to raise money for that charity. But his greed got the better of him. And over a five-year period, as their primary fundraiser, he stole about $800,000. And during his trial, he said that he would never hurt these disabled kids, and yet his stealing that money was exactly what he was doing. He was hurting those kids because it, that, that money paid for wheelchairs. It, it paid for swimming pools where they did their therapy. It, it paid for the equipment they need to participate in the Paralympics and all the other things that were done for those disabled Israelis who were young kids as well as adults. We, we can tell ourselves that when we still a little bit here or we lie a little bit there to somehow advantage ourselves financially, that oh, it's really not hurting anybody or everybody is doing it, the truth is. It hurts other people. And here's the thing. When we sin financially against other people, we are sinning against God. That's what he said in verse 2. When someone, when a person sins and acts unfaithfully against the Lord by doing all these financial wrongs, you're sinning against the person that you hurt and you're also sinning against God and God cares. He calls it sin. He calls it acting unfaithfully and God notices. It was told about a, a man named Howard when he was 27 years old, had a pretty good job, but then had the opportunity to move to another company, a job that was similar, maybe a little more responsibility. But he wanted to move to that new company and that new job because it afforded him more opportunities for advancement in his career. During the negotiations, they asked him what his current salary was. 
And in his mind, rather than he thought to himself, I'm not going to tell them the truth. He he didn't increase it. He didn't lie and increase it by a large amount, just just 4%. Inflated his current salary by 4% because thinking, well, the the more I'm making now, or they think I'm making now, the more they'll they'll pay me. And he justified it in his own mind by saying, well, I'm losing two weeks vacation, and that that increase will kind of make up for the lost vacation. And besides, other people lie like this. The problem was Howard was a believer, follower of Jesus. And later, his conscience started bothering him. I would like to say the Holy Spirit began convicting him. And he started thinking to himself, why did I lie? Why did I lie? Why did I not just trust God and tell them the truth and explain that I was losing two weeks vacation? And because of that, I think it was worth X amount of, of dollars. Why did I not, not just tell them the truth? And, and, and he said the thing that really smacked him in the face, what really hit him was the realization, the realization that the desire for just a little bit more money, you know, just 4%, just a little bit more money was all it took for him to sacrifice his integrity. You see, the world may not care about that, but God does. And those of us who love Jesus and follow Jesus, honesty matters. The truth matters. Integrity matters. As disciples, we care about this because God cares. As disciples, we have integrity because our God is holy and he calls for us to be holy. He is righteous. And as we talked about last Sunday, he calls for us to live a righteous life. And when we steal, when we commit fraud, when we're dishonest, when we lie, to benefit ourselves financially, we're not acting like followers of Jesus Christ. We are acting like the culture. We are acting like the world. And when we do it and we get caught, when they see us do it, they, they laugh. They, oh, you're just like me. Why should I believe in your God? And sometimes we do it in such a way that it actually adds to the hostility in our culture, adds to the hostility people who do not know Jesus feel toward those of us who do know Jesus Christ. He goes on in that passage to say, if you're guilty, you need to make restitution. And if possible, 20% more than you stole. And that that is part of making atonement, part of repentance. We say, all I have to do is say, God, forgive me. God, God says, if you repent of your financial sins, you're going to do what you can to make it right. And if possible, you will make restitution. You remember the story in the gospel of Luke about a little short guy named Zacchaeus. Our kids for years seeing Zacchaeus was a wee little man, etc. and wanted to see Jesus. So he climbed up in a tree to get a good view and Jesus spots him up there, has a conversation with him. Zacchaeus was a tax collector who, who made himself rich collecting taxes from his Jewish, Jewish Friends on behalf of the Romans, if you will, and and he was rich. And and Zacchaeus comes down out of that tree. Jesus goes to his house. They share a meal together. And Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus becomes a believer. And after he surrenders his life to Jesus, Zacchaeus said, Lord, half of all my possessions I'm going to give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, notice that, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, 
anything, I will give back four times as much. The principle that we talked about in Leviticus 6, that God says, if you are mine, you're my son, my daughter, my child, my disciple, my follower. You live in this sinful world, this dishonest world, this corrupt world, this hostile world. This culture that is that, that, that is so corrupt and justifies it and will wink if you steal. You as a follower of Jesus live in this hostile culture by practicing financial integrity. That's the first lesson. We are people of integrity. We have financial, we have integrity. And if we do, it's going to show up in how we do business and how we pay our bills, and, and how, we, how we treat people uh, when we owe them money or we're, we're working for them or they are working for us, when we fill out our income taxes, when we pay for things at the department store and they give us too much money back accidentally because we are followers of Jesus and he is holy, he is righteous, so are we. And that will always show itself by our having financial integrity. If we're going to live as followers of Jesus in this hostile, sinful culture, we need financial integrity. Now, lesson number two, we need to have integrity in our relationships. Relational integrity. Integrity in how we treat other people. You're in the book of Leviticus. Just turn a few pages forward through Numbers over to the book of Deuteronomy, and you'll be in Deuteronomy. Look at chapter 27. This is near the end of Moses' life. Not long after this, the people of Israel will enter the promised land, and Moses is going over uh, the, the laws God has given them for how they are to treat one another, how they are to treat strangers how they are to treat other people. And uh, it's, it's, it's some very powerful words, starting at verse 15. Uh, he says, Cursed is the man who makes an idol or a molten image, an abomination to the Lord. Verse 16, Cursed is he who dishonors his father or mother. 17, Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark. Verse 18, cursed is he who mistakes, who misleads a blind person on the road. Verse 19, cursed is he who distorts the justice due an alien, that's an immigrant, orphan, or widow. Verse 20, cursed is he who lies with his father's wife, his stepmom. Cursed in verse uh, 21 is uh, the one who lies with an animal, bestiality. 22, cursed is he who lies with his sister, the daughter of his father or his mother, whether it's his biological sister or stepsister or half-sister, doesn't really matter. Verse 23, cursed is he who lies with his mother-in-law. Verse 24, cursed is he who strikes his neighbor in secret. Verse 25, cursed is he who accepts a bribe. To strike down an innocent person. Verse 26. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. Cursed is a strong word. It really has the idea of, a, you know, you, you see it in cults and you see it in some movies about putting a curse on somebody. 
It actually has that idea. In ancient cultures, when two parties would enter into an agreement, enter into a treaty, part of the treaty, part of the agreement was that if one of them broke it, they were giving permission for the other to invite the gods to curse them to punish them for breaking their word, for breaking the treaty, for breaking the agreement. So it's a powerful word. And in this particular passage, cursed is mentioned 12 times. Of those 12, nine deal with how we treat other people. Yes, he mentions dishonoring your parents. He talks about incest. He talks about uh, bestiality. But nine of the twelve cursed in this chapter deal with human relations. And I want you to notice that several of them deal with those who are in a position of, of power or authority or have advantages, if you will, taking advantage of others, taking advantage of the blind, of widows, of orphans, of aliens, of immigrants, if you will, taking advantage of those who are weak and vulnerable and have less power, those who are disadvantaged. He says that God says those who take advantage of people like that are cursed in the sight of God. That's that's powerful. That's powerful. And we'll remember as followers of Jesus, he said, when asked what are the greatest commandments, he said there are two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, might, and strength. And the second one, love your neighbor, love others. And Jesus defined your neighbors, anyone you encounter, and in particular, those who are disadvantaged or at a point of need. Love your neighbor like yourself. He said, if you do that, you fulfill all the law. These things we read, how we treat people matters to God. It matters a lot to God. And it's supposed to matter to us. In these verses, he talks about corruption. Corruption in the courts. Corruption in business. Look at verse 25. He says, Cursed is he who accepts a bribe, a bribe to strike down the innocent person. Some, somebody who, who for their benefit or for the benefit of someone else and, 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 and because that other person is going to benefit, they, they pay you, they, they give you a position, they help you. And because of that, you scheme together. Whether it's in business or legal matters, you scheme together to take advantage of someone else for your benefit. He says, cursed are those who behave that way. And verse 24, cursed is he who strikes his neighbor in secret, abusing someone else physically and in other ways. Do you, do you realize that, that in America today, one out of every four women have been physically abused either by her husband or boyfriend. That means if I stood four women in front of us today, one of them has been physically abused by someone they know. That's tragic. That's tragic. Research tells us that between 30 and 40% Listen to this. Between 30 and 40% of women 
have been sexually abused. That means if I stood 10 women up in front of our church, three or four of them will have been sexually abused or harassed in some very significant way. And by the way, one in five men were abused as boys as well. And what's really striking is that 80% of women and men who are abused sexually are abused either by a relative or a friend of the family. A relative or someone that the family and the child or the person that is abused already knows and to some extent trust. And all of this means There are women listening to me right now who have been physically abused. Women listening to me right now who have been sexually abused. This means there are men listening to me right now who at some time in your life you were abused. It also means, it also means there are some men listening to me right now And in your past, you were the guilty one. You were the one who abused that child, abused that woman, abused that little boy, sexually, physically, verbally. And there are some listening to me right now, and you are still doing it. And God says, cursed, cursed is the person who does that. This world is full of violent, abusive behavior. This culture is full of people who will gladly use their position and their power and their resources and their privilege to take advantage of others for their benefit. And we need to understand that when we treat others that way, what we do is create more hostility in our culture. Research tells us that a very large percent of people in prison were abused when they were young in some way. It creates problems for our culture and society. It creates more hostility and more anger and more abusers. And God is telling us in this hostile, sinful world, his people, those of us who follow him and love him and know him are to be different. We are not to use the culture as an excuse or justification to act like the culture. We are to make this a better place, a safer place to live. We are to make our nation one that has less hostility, not one that has more hostility. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 in our New Testament, God tells us, while we have opportunity, while we, listen, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil. Listen to this, but overcome evil, how? By acting like the evil? No, overcome evil 
with good, with good. As we saw last Sunday, Jesus telling us to actually show love to those who are hostile toward us. The Old Testament book of Psalms, Psalms 37, verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Brothers and sisters, trust God and do good to others. Trust God and live with integrity. Don't trust the institutions. Don't trust the politicians. Don't trust the power of this culture more than you trust Jesus, because when you do, it will corrupt you and you will begin acting more and more and more like the culture and less and less like followers of Jesus Christ. We live in this culture that is so hostile and so angry by being different, not just in our morality and our ethics but in how we respond and how we talk to people, how we do business, how we deal with people. Several years ago, there was a story in Sports Illustrated about a little seven-year-old boy in Florida named Tanner who played baseball in his city league. And there was one particular game Tanner was playing on first base. And the other team was batting, and the batter hit the ball. There was a runner on first, and that ball was hit directly to Tanner, and he fielded that hard-hit ground ball very well, and he reached out to tag the runner going from first to second, and the umpire called the runner out. Tanner very quietly went over to the umpire and told her, I missed the tag. I didn't tag him. She reversed the call, ruled that the runner was safe, and sent him to second base. Two weeks later, Tanner was playing another game, same female umpire. This time, Tanner was playing defense at shortstop. And there was a runner on second going to third, and Tanner got the ball, and he reached out to tag the runner, and and the umpire called the runner safe, safe at third. Tanner missed the tag. Tanner didn't get mad. He didn't act up. He just tossed the ball to the uh, pitcher, went back to his defensive position at shortstop, but you could tell he wasn't happy. He was disappointed. And the umpire stopped the game, went over to him and said, Tanner, what's wrong? And very softly, quietly, Tanner said, I tagged the runner. The umpire reversed the call, called the runner at third out, and sent him to the dugout. Well, you can imagine how the coach of the other team responded. He stormed out of the dugout onto the field, demanding why she had reversed the call. And the umpire very quietly explained to the coach what had happened two weeks earlier and then said, if a kid is that honest, I have to give it to him. Oh, brothers and sisters, how much better would our culture be? How much better would America be if those of us who go to church and say we're saved and we're Christians and we follow Jesus had a reputation of honesty and integrity and doing the right thing like that little seven-year-old boy? May we act like Jesus more and more and like our culture 
less and less. That is how we live as disciples in a hostile culture.